0: Welcome to Little Detours with Regina Brett, where we find meaning and even a little bit of magic in the mess of life. This episode of Little Detours with Regina Brett was recorded on the morning of May 29th. Later that day, prosecutors charged former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin with third-degree murder and manslaughter in the death of George Floyd. Welcome to Little Detours with Regina Brett where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me, I'm your host, Regina Brett. Well, Minneapolis is burning right now and people are enraged. The video clearly shows a white Minneapolis police officer kneeling on a black man's neck until he has squeezed the life out of him. Before he was choked to death, George Floyd pleaded, I can't breathe. Those same dying words, or uttered by Eric Garner, who was killed by police officers in New York in 2014. George Lloyd was 46. Eric Garner was 27. The list of black men killed by police officers goes on and on. And then we have white women calling the police on people just because they're black. There's a man who was watching in Central Park, Christian Cooper, who asked a woman to uh, put her dog on a leash. She didn't only refuse. She called the police and claimed he was threatening her. She's since lost her job and her reputation, but it really got me thinking, how safe is it to be a black man in America? And I wanted to just have a conversation about this, to kind of unpack some of this, to kind of get some clarity on what to do. And I thought, I want to turn to, for me, a man who's a voice of courage and clarity and wisdom, and also compassion. My friend, Jimmy Malone, he's a radio personality and comedian, Jimmy's co-host of the WMJI Morning Show. You can hear him weekdays on the Nolan Malone and Coolick show on WMGI. Jimmy, thanks for joining us today.
1: And I have, we had to say Nolan Malone, Coolick, and Tracy. We don't want to leave oh, the, the lady out. I mean, I <laughs> no
0: so much. I personally think it should be the Malone show, but that's just me. You know, Jimmy, you what I love about you on the show is it can be a volatile conversation, it can be a funny conversation, but you always have an element of compassionate understanding and you elevate it to a new way of looking at it. You can take the same kind of uh, pie and turn it around and look at a different slice of it. So I thought about you when I I heard about this situation in Minneapolis and first of all how did you hear about George uh, Floyd and what happened? What was your
1: proud, I I bet the first time I heard about it was on Twitter, uh, which seems to get news out to me quicker than a lot of other places and I think that's where I first heard about it and then I started looking at the footage and just trying to comprehend it like everybody else.
0: When you saw that footage, did you kind of see it as a as a kind of journalist that you are, as a, as a news person, uh, as a radio person, or did you feel it deeply as a black
1: guy? I felt it deeply as a black guy, and I also felt it deeply just as a human. Uh, I felt it deeply as a black guy because you're, you had... There, there's one thing when you have a police officer who murders uh, uh, somebody... And, and then says, we have to cover it up. We have to plant a gun on him. We got to plant drugs. We got to cover it up somehow. But this was a police officer who said, people are filming me and I feel perfectly okay just forcing my knee into the neck of an unarmed man because I don't think there's anything wrong with it. That's what hurt me as a black man. Uh, but as a human, I also realized that there are a lot of whites, Middle Eastern, Hispanic, Asian people who are just as outraged as I am. And uh, when you see some of the protests, it's not just black people protesting. It's white people. It's, it's, we, we talk about the white women who are caring. There's white women out there protesting. It's, it's people of all races protesting. And I I don't ever want to forget that either.
0: You know, I love that you speak as a human because I think sometimes we divide so much into our camps of white and black or women or male or whatever. And for you to, to look at that moment where there's an officer, like you said, he knows he's being filmed. And even when George Floyd goes limp, and you know you've, you've taken the breath out of him, he still didn't move.
1: He still didn't move. It's, it's sad. People think if, uh, that we're being dramatic, but I'm, I'm telling you, like, like, I lived in Solon for a while, now I live in Orange. I grew up in the Glenville area. But my friends in Solon, my black friends, they literally sit down with their, with their sons at, at some, some age when we have the talk. You know, like for some people, the talk is about sex. For for a lot of black people, the talk is to their sons, here's what you have to do to avoid getting killed. And it's it's painful. And now we're at the point where in addition to teaching our sons what to do to avoid getting killed, we have to start teaching our daughters how to properly film (laughs) and stream so people will. Because just imagine without that video, that officer would just say, he was resisting. He was a, he was a big black dude. I feared for my life, and no one would say a word. And when you think about throughout history, how many people of color were in jail or even executed because there was no videotape of what actually happened?
0: You know, I was thinking about that this week, Jimmy. That you know, some people think, "Oh, there's more incidents." No, they've never been filmed before, and it it just uh, gives me goosebumps to think how many people were killed by police officers in manners like this, and we just never knew. We
1: never, never knew. knew the truth. Imagine if we had video back when uh, Emmett Till oh. was lynched. What 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 impact that would have had, possibly, uh, if we could see it, as opposed to just having some random people who I think, I, if I'm pretty sure they all got acquitted, but there was no video back then. It would have changed. It could have changed the course of history. We had no video when Tulsa, Oklahoma happened. We just didn't have it.
0: It seems like now the first video it. was Rodney King. I think that was when things changed where we had the video uh, and we could see what we used to call police brutality.
1: Right. But even with Rodney King, I still remember this is, this is when things changed for me. When Rodney King happened, I remember there were a lot of, I was trying to do what I could to talk to some young people saying you can't, you have to let the system work. And I said, don't, I remember telling them, don't worry, there's video this time. So there's going to be justice. Well, there was no justice then. And I'll tell you, I have not, at all confident that there's going to be justice at this time. I am very, very much expecting the police officer to say he feared for his life, and some jury or judge, whatever, is going to say, okay, we uh, have some weird quirk in the law where maybe it wasn't right, but if he feared for his life, we have to let him go.
0: And, you know, people are saying, why why hasn't this officer been arrested? It's one thing right. to be fired from your job, but right. you could see him on this video kill a man. You
1: if if it, I had done that to my
0: neighbor or you did it to your neighbor, Right. He'd be in jail awaiting a, a trial.
1: Not only did he not, has he not been arrested, and I say, I have serious doubts that he'll ever be convicted, unfortunately, but I, I fully expect that him and the other three officers who were with him will be on another police force by this time next year.
0: That is scary. Well, Jim, we've had our own situations here in Cleveland, Ohio. You know, we had Tamir Rice, who was 12 years old, and I think about how young that is. I have a grandson who's 11. He was twelve years old. he was playing with the toy gun, and officers drove up I, I think just seconds, just opened the door, shot him down. twelve years old. right. And I thought, you know we have the video on that. you think something's going to change because of the video. What's it going to take
1: it, I, it's going to it's so deep rooted. Part of it is, I mean we could talk about this for hours. There is an image of minorities that has been ingrained in people. Through movies, through TV shows, through the way news is reported, and then therefore, when they have that that deeply ingrained image, they can't just shake it on the street in an instant. I watch, uh, I used to watch cops, right? Watch PD live uh, shows like that, and you'll see a a uh, a white guy with a machete, a gun, a knife, and and the police are talking to him and saying, hey, we, you know, put it down. Maybe he's got some mental condition, and they try to, they try to resolve it. And then but because of the image in the movies, like the TV shows of a black man, like this is a dangerous superhero-powered thug, and we have to shoot him because we're in fear of our life. And until we stop covering things like that, so some of the black artists and movie producers, they need to think about the images they put out there, too. It's not all white people causing this problem. Uh, we have to take some responsibility too, and we have to get more images out there of good uh, blacks and and Middle Eastern people and Asian than whites. That's
0: a good point. It, it's sad because you see a movie and you're almost surprised if the lead black character isn't a drug dealer or isn't a thug or isn't right. somehow the the stereotype that we portray black people in movies for decades. Right.
1: We we have uh, and again it's it's both from the standpoint of violence as from the standpoint of Black people would be better. Uh, remember the show, Different Strokes? I used to get a kick out of oh, this. Yeah. Different Strokes was, uh, was, in my opinion, one of the worst shows on TV where it showed two black boys whose saving grace was that a white guy adopted them. Oh. And and this and then not only was that show out there, but they, they doubled down and said, now let's come up with Webster and have another black guy <laughs> and It's like, that, yeah. if you could only get a white person to, to bring you out of this misery, then your life would be better. And, and so you have that image, and again, you have the image of the thugs, and we just have to do, we just have to do more. But again, I, I still want to stress, I, I don't want to overlook the, the people like you, and the people, I'm, I'm on Twitter every day, and there are many, many white people who are just as outraged, and just as frustrated, and I just don't want, I get frustrated when I hear people say, well, white people did this, because that's just as bad as when white people say, black people did that.
0: Well, I'm glad you point that out, because I think we have this misperception that there is a black community and there is a white community. And, I, and, and we are so diverse, all of us. It isn't like black people think one way and white people think one way. There's such a diversity of humanity within those
1: groups. Right. Right. And and again, the, the we can, we have to somehow take and I don't know how we do it. We have to take our country back. Of the crazies who have somehow taken over in past administration, and I, this is something I really wish people would understand. This, they, they try to say, uh we have to work together at bipartisan. It's it's not politics. There's nothing bipartisan about racism. There's nothing bipartisan about bigotry. I can uh, Steve Locharet is was Republican, one of my a close friend of mine. We could talk civilly because he he wasn't a racist. He wasn't a bigot. This current president and what he has brought out in this country the Mitch McConnells of the world. This has got nothing to do with politics. This has got something to do with the president who said, we won't rent apartments to black people. He said that African nations are blank hole nations. He hired Steve Bannon, a known white supremacist, to, to work as his chief of staff. He pardoned Joe Arpaio, who may be the most racist uh, sheriff of the 20th century. He said, why can't we get more white people from Norway coming to this country instead of black people? He said, there's good people on both sides. And people still look at me and say, that guy's not a racist. What in the heck does it take to get you to be honest?
0: You know, that's a great point. And when the people march with torches, the anti-Semitic march, the uh, white supremacist march, you know, the president said, well, there's. Both sides here, you know, we have right. to listen to both sides. Right. But then, when the people in Minneapolis are saying, "Hey, we are tired of this," they bring out the police force right. with gun, with with
1: tear. They bags. start looting, we start shooting. What president talks like that?
0: Let's talk a little bit about the looting because that that happened in the Rodney King. It happened in the sixties. Right. It, it seems like there's such a, a, a powder keg of a response sometimes. And my guess is it comes from just feeling so powerless that you just kind of lose all control over what's next. Your thoughts on the looting, I know you've tweeted about it and have said you think it's wrong.
1: I I do think the looting is wrong. I I understand, even though I don't think they're effective anymore, I do understand the people who say we're going to march. I do understand the people who say we're going to make a targeted protest. But there is nothing about going into Target and walking out with a 4K TV that's going to make a police officer reflect on whether or not he's being too brutal. That's just not the way it works. And these people, there is no way that anybody in George uh, Floyd family is looking at them looting saying, wow, they are really honoring the memory of our of our fallen relative. It's just a stupid move. Now, again, we have to do something. And I do think people are frustrated, but a lot of the people that you're targeting when you do that looting, they might be on our side. And some of the some of the small business owners who are going to be out of business while they try to you know repair the damage and this, that, and the other, they could have very well been on our side.
0: And I think that there's sort of that all or nothing response. There's people that just say, well, we're going to wait for the justice system to play out. And then there's the others that are like, we're going to take over and be our own justice system. Maybe there's sort of a measured response somewhere in between doing nothing and burning down the town.
1: The, there is, but we have no faith in the justice system. I don't. I, I mean, I, I'm college degree, worked, you know, amongst all people, tried for years and years to say it will work. Our justice system does not work. I cannot, I forget his name. I, I wish I'd looked it up. but I still have the image of uh, just two or three years ago, it was a, a black man and he was, he had committed some crime and he, he's wrong with that, but he was running. He was literally running away from the police officer, got shot in the back and killed. And the police officer said, I was in fear for my life. How could you possibly be in fear of your life when the guy is running away from you? And then the police officer was not, he, he was acquitted. There were no charges. And you see that happen over and over. You see a black guy sitting in his car saying, I, I have a concealed carry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you. And they shoot him, and it's no charges because they just were so terrified of this superhuman strength black guy that they had to shoot him. So I
0: think that's what we've got to figure out is where where we find answers in that middle. But we are already at the halfway mark. uh, So I want to pause. And thank you for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett and to our guest, Jimmy Malone. I know you have many podcast choices, and I'm grateful that you chose to listen to mine. Jimmy, I want to talk a little bit about your own upbringing. And uh, you're two years older than me. You were born in 1954. You went through the – you lived in Glenville. And – Do you remember the riots, the Huff riots? Yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, thank you for saying
1: 54. I was actually born in 53, but I'll take the 54 if okay. that's wrong on okay. Wikipedia, but no problem. Yeah, I'll make I, grew you on, today. <laughs> I grew up on Phillips Avenue in the Glenville area, and I, I I remember that era. And it was uh it was scary. It was it was something kind of tough to live through. I, I, I was still young back then, so I didn't understand fully. I just saw images and have images of uh, things that were disturbing, but couldn't fully comprehend what I should be doing about it.
0: Tell us a little bit about, can you frame a little bit about those, that riot, that time period, what, through your eyes, what it was about?
1: Again, for me, I was still young. Like if I was living through it at this age, it would be totally different. I was a young guy and, uh, you know, back then, the most important thing for me was whether I was going to get a popsicle on a hot day or, uh, <laughs> or who I was going to play with. But I, again, I, I, I saw some of the violence. I remember people putting uh, signs in their windows of their businesses and they would put in their soul brother. And that was supposed to be a signal like, I'm with you, so don't if you're going to loot something or tear something down, don't do it at my store. And then back then, I was living in a neighborhood. That most of the whites that I saw were either, you know, at school you know, as teachers or business owners, there weren't a lot of, uh, there were a few, but not a lot of whites like living on my street, that kind of thing. So I, I just didn't have the perspective that I would have if it happened today.
0: It was such a volatile time. You've got Martin Luther King Jr. gunned down, Malcolm X killed, the Kennedys killed. It, it didn't feel like it was safe to be anybody with any kind of power.
1: You know? Yeah. And, the, and, it, and I, I do remember back then, I was thinking, Things were happening and people were doing something. I remember uh, I, I was up involved in a, in a couple of like protest marches or, or uh, boycotts. Uh, my mom was over there at, um, if I remember the name of the school right, Stephen E. Howell, when they were building that school. She was one of the people over there, you know, trying to protest until the board minister, and I can't think of his name, he got run over and killed, you know, by the bulldozer. But our, our city was so divided back then. It was so racist. It was so evident. And I kept thinking, it, it's going to get better. And now here we are, uh, that was in the 60s, here we are in 2020, and I think we've, I think there were periods where we got better, but I think we dramatically regressed.
0: You know, it's interesting you say that because I wrote for years in Akron, Ohio, never had any issues with race. When I came to Cleveland and wrote for the Plain dealer, anytime I wrote a column that in any way defended a black person, I would get angry white <laughs> calling me. I mean, hating me. I had my life threatened because I wrote a column about a young 10-year-old girl who was black, the only black kid in the school, and kids were making fun of her in this school, did nothing to protect her. And it infuriated some white, angry man who threatened my life. I had police watching my house for a month. Wow, and I never experienced anything like that in any other yes. city. Like, and Cleveland is so divided. They say it's one of the most segregated cities in the country.
1: Yeah, well, you do, people who are like just getting here or young now, they don't remember what it was like before there was 480, where to get from one side of town to the other was like, it was like taking a, a an overseas trip. Uh, so whatever was going on over there, on over there, we just didn't know about it and weren't, didn't feel welcome and were afraid. I lived right, uh, you know, Glenville borders, uh, Murray Hill. I was, when I grew up, I don't know if anything would have ever happened to me. I was terrified to, to even think about going to Murray Hill. That was just the perception we had. I was terrified to go to Parma back then, but things are better now, but we got a long way to go.
0: Right. And Murray Hill and Parma were considered kind of white havens that you didn't go into if you were black, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Now, Jimmy, can you tell us a little bit about, for you as a black man growing up in Cleveland, when did you feel like you personally experienced uh, maybe an act of racism that really left that kind of imprint that you're changed by?
1: Uh, it, it, you know, actually, it happened more when I moved. We, we grew up in a Glenville area, and I had to say our neighborhood was, we, I grew up in a great neighborhood, you know, front porches, there are new neighbors, went to Cleveland Public Schools. I had great teachers. I'm still friends with my second grade teacher, Harry. White. And, and, <laughs> so but when I moved to Shaker is when it became blatantly obvious to me that there was a, uh, a difference. And again, that's not to say that I got really, really bad treatment at Shaker, but it was a clear black-white situation became more evident for me. Uh, and then in my professional career, I, I can remember when I was doing stand-up comedy, and um, I had developed a certain reputation of being a pretty good guy, and I would call a club, and they would book me uh, based on my reputation, and then they would say, send a photo, and this, that, and the other, and then they would get my photo, and i call back to confirm, and they go, go, um, we've we got to cancel this date. And I would go, why? And they, it was all they would just come up with some bizarre reason. And it finally occurred to me that they were they didn't know I was black when they booked me, but they got the photo and said, "Oh, we got we can't book this guy."
0: Oh man,
1: yeah. that is something. One of the things I I I don't know how to correct this part of it. We have to get more minorities, not just blacks. When I say minorities, I mean women, uh, Muslims, Middle East, Asian, whatever, in positions of authority because it's the, the decision makers who racism you can deal with, because it's right there. and You can legislate against it. You can do a lot of things. Bias, you can't. And when a person making the hiring decision or deciding who's, who's going to get a promotion or who's going to get a raise, you can't eliminate your biases. And they, they will sit there and go, we have a black candidate and a white candidate, and I don't know why, but I just feel like the white candidate is the one to go with. That happens more than somebody just being a, a, an absolute racist.
0: You know, that's interesting to separate those two, the bias and racism, because most people say, well, I'm not a racist, but they don't realize the biases that are just so ingrained in their life. They don't even notice them.
1: We can't help it. If you if you say to me, Jimmy, who's the greatest singing group of all time? I say the Temptations, not because- I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what I grew up with. You You might've grown up with the Beatles or the Eagles. So you might say somebody, you might say a white group, not because you're white, but that's what you grew up with. So I can't shake that bias and neither can you. But if none of the minorities or not enough of the minorities are in those decision-making positions, and I can, any black in the media can tell you about a time they were sitting in their boss's office where the the boss said, you're not going to get this, and I can't exactly tell you why, (laughs) but you're just not going to get this.
0: Well, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the word white privilege. I hear that a lot, and and, uh, the idea that, White people have privileges they don't even realize they have just because they're white. And I have to tell you, I had a conversation once with a great editor, Mark Russell, when he was at the Plain Dealer. And we were talking about race, and I said to him, you know, I've never really seen myself as a white person. I see myself as a woman. And I know this might sound like, geez, how could you not know you're white? But I think most white people really don't walk around seeing themselves as white. They see themselves as a as a, a guy, a woman, uh, whatever their identity at work is. But to the rest of the world, that is our role and our identity. And until I think we know that, we don't realize what privileges come with that. Like, I can I can go anywhere and not worry about being misinterpreted by a, my actions by a police officer because I happen to be white.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it is, uh, I don't blame you for that uh, <laughs> because it's not your fault. Uh, that's just the way the world works. Although, uh, yeah, so there's certainly white privilege. There's economic privilege. In right. some situations, there's probably black privilege, Um And, uh, you know, certain things you can get away with, you know, I can think of some people who I'm convinced (laughs) were not fired because they said, we don't want to risk looking bad for firing this black person. So it can work all around. And again, it's tough. I'm so determined not to stereotype because, again, it's easy to say, look at the Karens or look at the white women or look at white people. But there's a lot of good white people. There's a lot of great black people and good and bad on both. Obama was not elected just on a black vote. And his campaign contributions didn't just come from blacks. And there's, I say, there is a, all, I mean, all through history, there have been white people who have been willing to help. And I don't want to include them with the racist creeps who who are just filled with hate.
0: So, you know, I've read a few uh, posts recently. I put them on my Facebook page. Uh, articles that were kind of suggestions of things that white people can do for justice. Uh, one article was 75 Things White People Can Do for Justice by Corinne Shutak. And one of them was uh, Google whether your local police department currently has the officers wearing cameras and are they activated. So I thought, you know what? I call my Cleveland Heights Police Department and uh, talked to a dispatcher who sent me to the police chief's office. And I left a message with that question. I thought, I know it sounds small, but I thought, at least I can say, hey, are you wearing cameras? Do you turn them on? And have you trained your officers to deescalate situations? It was a small thing. And I don't even know if the message got through, but if we all do like, it's almost like pecking away, chipping away. Maybe we can make a difference. I
1: don't we can know. make a we can make a huge difference. It's, you know, I'm I'm getting involved with philanthropy, and a lot of times I'll talk to somebody, and they'll say, "I I want to raise a million dollars to start a whatever," and I go oh, I'd like a food my own food bank. Well, that's great, but while you're trying to raise a million dollars, there's a kid right now who wishes you would just buy him a hamburger. And I say these little things that we do. Collectively, if, if you do it and I do it and a whole lot of other people start doing it, I think it can make a difference. It's just hard to see the results quick enough to give you the inspiration to keep doing it.
0: No, that's a good point because there are a couple of times I've seen uh, police officers pull somebody over, and I you know I'm out for a walk and I'll see that it's a young black male, and I will just stand on that sidewalk until they're done writing the ticket because I just want them yeah. to know somebody's watching, and maybe yeah. nothing would have happened, but I kind of feel like we all have to be that uh, that presence to say, hey. I've got my camera and and I'm going to film this if if i need it
1: right and and that's that's a great thing and like i said, i'm I'm just glad to see these videos come out the videos of people harassing employees are starting to come out but again now uh, when you see the videos of armed protesters storming a state capitol and nothing being done right. when a black person or a minority sees that, they're thinking why the difference? why is it so different for us
0: and you're right and, and a lot of that is that sense of. Somehow we've created this, black people are scary, white people aren't, all through history.
1: Right, right. And it's uh, it's, it's hard to change.
0: Another article I read, 100 Ways White People Can Make Life Less Frustrating for People of Color by, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Cassie, Cassiana Boom. And she talked about, don't assume people of color share the same views. She mentioned reading some books like The New Jim Crow, Sister Outsider. Anything, just in general, that we can do to educate ourselves, just to understand. Like, because I didn't grow up. To be honest, I grew up in a small town. We didn't learn a whole lot about slavery. We didn't learn much about the Holocaust.
1: They taught Holocaust a little bit better than slavery. They they taught when I was learning the slavery was like there's pictures of the people at night singing and having food and. They talked about this. and They didn't talk about the lynchings. They didn't talk about the people leaving church to go and lynch someone in town square. So we were both denied that part of the education. I think the, the problem is that the people who want to be better are already better. And the people who aren't really good have no desire to be better. So you're not wearing a MAGA hat. You're not out there uh, you know, saying horrible things about Blacks or Jews or women or gays. So... You want to be better and you already are. I want to be better. I try you know, I'm trying to get even better. But of the people who are who really need the help, they don't see it and they don't care.
0: Well, Jimmy, we just have a couple minutes left. I want to make sure we have time to talk about the Malone Scholarship Golf Classic. You have raised so much money and sent so many kids to college. And you don't just send them to college. You are like a mentor like on steroids for these guys. <laughs>
1: They bless, they absolutely bless my life. I, I started off saying, what can I do for them? But it's been, what have they done for me? And I, and again, I, I have black, white, Asian, Middle East, everybody's on my group. It's not a minority scholarship. And uh, I have been blessed not only by the students in the scholarship program, but by the friends who have supported it. I have sponsors from all different areas of town. And again, you're talking about sp- sponsors of many different races and ethnicities. So I'm, I'm lucky because I can see the good. And a whole lot of different people, but if you're if you're not in that environment, you don't get that chance. But the kids are amazing. I just picked new kids for this year, and uh, 15 new kids, excited to welcome them to my my scholarship family. And I'm gonna have 61 out them to give out 61 scholarships this year.
0: And I would love to see a picture someday of all the kids you've helped. It would look like just this amazing family. And what yeah. I love about it too is it's not just based on need you want to see positivity. You want to see an attitude. You want to see a spark. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, I'm looking for a kid. Most of the kids have have overcome some tremendous obstacle. Last year, I had 58 students in my program. Only five live with both parents. And the rest of them have through either divorce, incarceration, drug abuse, they had to kind of like raise themselves. But they're still positive. I have a 90% graduation rate. I should say they have a 90% graduation rate. Most of them graduate in four years, and most of them want to do you know, really good things. I also have—I I made it a point to include some middle-class people in there because what happens is the poor get help, the rich don't need help, and the middle class is just shut out a lot of times. So uh, I say I do have some kids in there who you know live with both parents and have middle-class income, but most of them are very, very poor.
0: Well, Jimmy, I, I love that you walk the talk. You're out there actually doing something, and I wonder these—these these kids are always—you have this inflow of of 18-year-olds and 20-year-olds in your life. How has that affected you? Because I know that as we age and move off into different parts of our life, we can forget that younger generation. And I feel like you're constantly inviting that newness into your life.
1: Yeah, I learn a lot from them. They've, they've helped me open my eyes. You know, I have certain biases like everybody else. And uh, I'll never forget one girl, She when she got my scholarship just before we could Zoom, uh, she sent me a picture. And uh, she had tattoos and she had piercings. And, and I said, my gosh, this is a freak, and she's gonna be a terrible student. I wish I'd never picked her. Uh, she graduated from uh, Ball and Wallace early with a 4.0 GPA and double major in chemistry and uh, biology. And uh, and I was like, man, see, I, <laughs> I have to get rid of my biases too. And uh, so I've learned a lot from them, and I keep learning from them every single day. I'm just glad to have them. Been-
0: I'm glad you shared that, because I think about that story you told about, you know, when they saw a picture of you, you're a Black comedian, so all of a sudden they disinvite you. But we have, like, those biases in other areas, and I think sometimes we don't realize that. I've heard people my age, I'm in my 60s, talk about young people as if, you know, they... Disregarded because they have a tattoo or a nose ring or right. an eyebrow ring or whatever and yet there's the whole you know boomer uh, dissing boomers because they're old and fuddy duddies. I guess one last thoughts uh, any last thoughts from you on just maybe how to open our minds and our hearts to, to everybody
1: Again, uh, the problem the problem I think it is is that the people who want to open their minds, their minds are already open. Because the fact that you want to open your mind means that it is open. But I don't know, I, I have no idea how to get through to people who are so close-minded that uh, they're just determined to hate. You probably know people like this, too, who they, they wake up every single day, and their mission is to cause trouble to somebody for something, and there's nothing we can do about it.
0: Well, Jimmy, I want to thank you for your, your wisdom and everything you do on WNJI. Um, thanks for joining us today, everybody. Tell us the best way to connect with you, Jimmy, and your scholarship. Do you have a website we can go to?
1: Yeah, if you go to J I M M Y M A L O N E dot com, all the information about my students are there. I love those kids, and uh, all, all the information about the scholarship program is right there.
0: Well, Jimmy, my takeaway today from you is really that uh, we, we're all doing the best we can, and those who aren't, I don't know if we can change them, but I can keep making my effort a little higher. Yeah, and elevate. yeah. As Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. We just got to go high.
1: (laughs) Although I'm beginning to think we need to go low sometimes, too.
0: (laughs) I sure hope not. Jimmy, I want to close with your answer to this question. I ask this to all my guests. What's the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have?
1: Uh, I, I really, and I'm not trying to sound like some saint or something, but I genuinely try to make somebody's life better each day. And I don't mean by doing something huge. But it it takes no effort to go into Walmart and see somebody's name tag and say, hi, Regina, how are you today? It takes no effort to say to a a young man bagging groceries, call him sir, to make him feel more important. So whatever I can do, if if I can end the day by touch one life and make that person feel better, that's that's what it really drives me.
0: That's a life well lived. Thank you, Jimmy Malone. I appreciate you joining me.
1: Thank you, Regina. I'm honored to be your friend.
0: Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.